Well, good morning. I want to begin with sharing a few statistics recently about the current crisis with the virus. Angus Reid, which is a Canadian research institute, found earlier this month that half of all people surveyed said their mental health has worsened over the past month and a half. Statistics Canada just on Wednesday reported that almost a quarter of Canadians indicate poor or fair mental health, according to a survey of 46,000 Canadians. This morning, we read the words of Jesus, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I think when we're going through a crisis for someone just to tell us to have peace, might strike us as something that feels a little disconnected from the reality that we're going through. But when we take into account the circumstances of Jesus when he says these words, we find that that's not the case at all. When Jesus says, my peace I give you, he's saying this on the evening, within a few hours of which he would be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and would die. <laughs> what this means is that Jesus is saying the kind of peace he offers us is a kind of peace that isn't contingent on our circumstances, a kind of peace that can hold us no matter what is happening to us. The question that the text we're looking at this morning in John 14, the question that that text is answering is, how do we get a peace like that? How do you come to have a peace that can hold you even when your life is falling apart? The text we'll be looking at, I invite you to open to it if you have a Bible with you, I think falls along three lines. We're going to be looking at the problem of peace, the prospect of peace, and the practice of peace. So I want to look first at the problem of peace. Why is it so hard to have peace in a time like this? Actually, in this text, we see that the reason why Jesus needs to offer his disciples peace is because peace was something that they were lacking at this moment that he's meeting with them in. And the reason for that, I think, comes in three parts. They're lacking peace in part because of their circumstances, or at least the circumstances that Jesus is telling them are about to happen. He tells them, if you go back just a little earlier, in chapter 13, verse 21, that Jesus will be betrayed. He tells them in chapter 13, verse 33, that he will be leaving them. Jesus wasn't just a friend who was leaving them. They had come to see that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, who was going to restore the kingdom of God to earth. And yet this Jesus was leaving. And seemingly from the rest of verse 33, Jesus will be dying. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. The text we're looking at in chapter 14, verse 31, ends with Jesus saying, rise, let us go from here. And most commentators think Jesus is saying this because the disciples have been meeting in the upper room and Jesus is taking them and moving them to Gethsemane, where all of these events in that garden would soon unfold. Judas would come to betray him. He'd be arrested and the rest would follow from there. The disciples have a lack of peace because they can't help but think about the circumstances that are going on in their lives. 
And I think to some extent we can resonate with that as well. The virus is continuing to spread. Loved ones are passing away. Many are losing their jobs. We have the agonizing events happening in Minnesota and in the United States. And all of this is not to mention the other stressful things which we just, by the normal course of life, we have going on in our lives. All of these things keep us from having peace. The text shows us that in part, our lack of peace just comes from the, the circumstances of this world. But we see too, it also comes for the disciples from their uncertainty about what the future holds. If you have a red letter Bible that shows you where Jesus is speaking and then where others are speaking, you'll notice Jesus is mostly the one speaking in this text, but sometimes the disciples interrupt with a question or, or they make a statement and all that we see in those statements punctuated throughout the text are traces of anxiety or just confusion or misunderstanding. We could look at chapter 14, verse four, verse four and five with Thomas. Jesus has said to the disciples that they know the way to where he's going. But in verse five, Thomas feels the need to point out to Jesus, Lord, we do not know the way to which you're going. How can we know the way? It's a question asked out of anxiety. Similarly, in verse eight, we see Philip make a statement that just shows he doesn't understand what's going on either. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He can sense that something's going to change, and he says, show us the Father, Jesus. He doesn't realize that all throughout Jesus' ministry, the Father has been present with them through Jesus himself in the person of God's Son. We see in verse 22 of our text, Judas, who's not the one who will betray Jesus, but another Judas among the disciples he seemingly also has to ask a question because he just doesn't follow what's going on. The disciples are anxious in part because of their uncertainty about what's to come. And I think, again, we can relate to this to some extent. There's a lot of uncertainty about what's going on. We don't know how long this virus will spread. We don't know for sure if we or our loved ones will get it. Uh, we don't know if we will keep our jobs, if we still have them. If we don't have our jobs, we don't know when we will find new ones. And that's something that takes away from our sense of peace. And we see it in the text here. But a third thing that takes away the peace of the disciples, we could say, is their own moral failure. If we look back in chapter 13, starting at verse 36, we see Jesus predicting that Peter will deny him. We read in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. In the John's gospel, we don't get any reaction from Peter or the disciples. Jesus just continues on teaching. And I think what that reflects is a heavy silence that must have hung over the room as Peter came to face with the awareness of his own inability to live up to his own principles. And there's something of a lack of peace that I think came from that. Something was going to happen, but they knew part of what was going to happen was going to involve their failure to live up to how they knew they should live. And again, I think we can relate to that in part. I think we know what it means to feel we have standards, we have a way we want to live, and to know that we repeatedly fail to live up to that. 
that's something that even as Christians, we experience on a regular basis. And yet in the midst of all this, Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give you, do I give to you. And I think we must appreciate here, Jesus is wanting the disciples to see that actually it's a good starting point to realize that the world cannot give us peace. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes the pains that we're going through, it seems for Jesus, have a purpose in God's hands. In part, they rouse us to wake up to the reality that the normal things we look to for our peace in financial stability, in the wellness of our families and our lives, in our jobs and our success in them, that these things ultimately cannot give a lasting peace. And that is actually a helpful place to start at for Jesus. It's only there that we can come to consider our need for a deeper, more lasting peace. Jesus speaks to us about the problem of peace in this chapter, that the peace the world gives simply doesn't last. But he also goes on to tell us now about the prospects of peace, a real peace that is available to us. As has been mentioned today, today is Pentecost in the church calendar. And we read that passage from Acts that celebrates the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell onto the disciples in Jerusalem and launched the mission of the church. This comes after the text we're looking at right now, the Pentecost came after Jesus had already died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Before he ascended, he had told the disciples to wait until they received power from on high. And that happens on the day of Pentecost. But the text we're looking at here is where Jesus promises Pentecost. It's where he anticipates that the spirit will be given. And he tells us a bit about what that means. And I think we just need to notice that on the one hand, we've seen Jesus speaks about his peace in this text. And he also speaks about the giving of the Spirit. And I think we must see that these two things have to be related. And actually, the Bible gives warrant for that because Paul writes in Galatians 5 that one of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. What this means is that the kind of peace that Jesus must be offering is related to the presence of someone who can give it. In other words, the Christian understanding of peace is not dependent on what circumstances we're in, but whom we are with. It's not based on what we're going through, but who is with us in the midst of what we're going through. For Jesus, that's the source of the peace that is not dependent and can get us through whatever we are facing. We see here Jesus promising the giving of this spirit, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. In verse 17, we read that this spirit will be in you. In verse 23, we read Jesus saying, speaking on behalf of himself and God the Father, we will come to the Christian and make our home with him or her. But this link between peace coming through presence, I think is something we can actually relate to, especially in this time of this virus. Because we all know one of the most meaningful things when we're going through, say, a medical emergency is to have someone with us, to have someone say, I'm going to be with you to the end. I'm going to be 
I'm going into the hospital with you. I'm going to be with you. Um, no matter what happens, I'll be there with you to the end. And the reason why we're thinking about that is because we're aware that many people aren't having that experience. There are many people, because of the restrictions of the virus, who are having to go to the hospital alone and having to die alone. Alone in the sense, at least, of not having their loved ones with them. We all know the kind of peace that can come from having a loved one with you, even when you feel your life's falling apart. But even that, it seems, with this virus is something we're seeing is being taken away. But Jesus promises a person who can be with us forever so that we would never feel we are alone, even if, even in a physical sense, we don't have our loved ones with us. Now, there is a but here because we see in verse 16 and 17, the part that I skipped over has to do with people who God and his spirit is not present with. The idea of God being present with us no matter what happens, as much as that might be said in our culture, actually isn't something Jesus says anyone can take for granted. It's not something we have automatically, at least into the sense of Jesus' spirit being with us. In verse 17, we read, well, in verse 16, we read, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, verse 17, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And we can see that Jesus here is, is drawing a line between us, that's how he calls one group, and the world. And we can tell that this is a theme, that it comes up a lot, because Judas, not the one who's going to betray Jesus, but the other Judas here, notices it in verse 22. That's why he, he asks this question. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And I think... Maybe from an outsider's perspective, this seems to be the kind of thing religion does a lot. It draws a line and says, there is this great thing, God's presence with you no matter what happens, but that's actually something restricted to our tribe. Our group has that, but other people don't. So if you, wanna, if you want that, you're going to have to join and be a part of us. That's at least what it seems like from an outside perspective. It seems Jesus is being unnecessarily exclusive about this promise of God's presence with us no matter what in the Holy Spirit. But to make sense of this, we need to take a step back and look at it within the context of the larger story of the Bible. As we've been thinking about in our series through Hebrews, two themes in tension throughout the whole Old Testament is that on the one hand, God wants to be present with his people. That's been his plan from the beginning. We see it in the Garden of Eden. He walks with Adam and Eve in the Garden. We see it at the giving of the law, where in Exodus 29, 43, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. God has a passionate desire to be with his people. But on the other hand, he cannot because of the people's rebellion against him. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. <laughs> At Mount Sinai, after the golden calf incident, when Israelites turn away from worshiping God to something else, God sends them onto the promised land, but tells them in Exodus 33, verse 3, I will not go up among you lest I consume you along the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. For us to presume that we can simply come into the presence of God is as if we could presume that we can simply come into the presence of the surface of the sun. It is something not so easily done. The holiness of God consumes that which is not holy. And from the Bible's perspective, that includes us. The Bible says we all, like sheep have turned astray. 
And the overarching question of the, New, of the Old Testament is, how will this tension be resolved? How is this, this God who wants to be with his people going to actually be with us? And that's a tension touched on here. We could look in our text at verse 15 to what seems to be maybe the answer to that. How would an unholy people come to be with, an, with a holy God? Verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this might get us thinking, okay, the way that we get into the presence of this holy God is by keeping his commandments. That way we love him. In that sense, we can cross the gap between our unholiness and God's holiness. But when we look closely at the verse, we see actually that is not what verse 15 is saying at all. Notice with me that it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that will there is in the future tense. What this actually is is doing is, is actually making a promise to the Christian. This text is actually something reassuring. This is saying that if you love God, what will happen naturally as a result of that is that you will keep my commandments. In other words, the person who's a Christian is someone who God has committed himself to and who will be committed to up until the very end. Paul writes in uh, Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. In other words, this is saying that in terms of the Christian's moral character, that is actually something that God commits himself to, such that even if we continue to wrestle with sins over and over, God won't give up on us. He will be committed to us until he makes us as holy as his Son. That won't happen in this life, but it will happen one day when we meet God face to face. One commentator explains this verse like this. He says, Jesus is describing a set of essential relations, not a set of titulating conditions. His true followers will love him. They will obey him. So far from this saying that, you know, the way to get holy, to be right with God is by keeping enough commandments. This is saying, actually, when someone loves God, God does a work of changing their heart and helps them become a new kind of person. So actually, the more important part of that verse for what we're thinking about is the first part. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. The kind of person who has God's presence dwelling with them in the Holy Spirit, the kind of person who has that kind of peace that comes with that presence, no matter what comes, that person is someone who loves Jesus. Now, we might think, Loving God, this is quite a actually low bar to set because that involves just, well, if it doesn't involve, you know, keeping all the commandments enough to be holy enough for God, then, then that must be quite easy. And in a sense it is, but in a sense it's not. Because if God is as we've put him so far, if he is this holy God in whose presence we cannot even stand, to actually start to love this God would be as strange as starting to love the judge passing a sentence against you. As strange as loving the police officer who's writing you a ticket. Our love does not naturally come out towards someone like that. There needs to be a change in the kind of relationship we have with that kind of God if actually there's going to be a genuine kind of love that can really grow within us. Now, I want to point to something interesting here. Jesus in this text says he gives us his peace. If you know the New Testament well, you'll know also that when Jesus appears to his disciples, the next time he has a chance for a long conversation with them, after the resurrection, he says also, peace be with you. 
What stands in between these two assurances of Jesus's peace are the events of his death and resurrection. I don't think it's a big jump to see that. I think Jesus is communicating that the peace that he gives, which seems to resolve this tension that's overshadowed the whole of the Bible, depends on what happens in between these two assurances of peace, depending on the events of his death. That's actually something that was predicted about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 5 tells us, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus is saying the way that peace arrives between God and man is through the chastisement that Jesus, the Messiah, receives on our behalf. He takes our punishment, the punishment for the ways in which we were unholy. He takes that onto himself. And if we think about it in terms of peace, if peace is contingent on present, something that are present, someone who's present with you, who is dear to you, what that means is on the cross, when Jesus is dying, he is not just suffering physically, but he is also separated from the presence of the Father who he had enjoyed fellowship with from eternity past. In other words, I think we could say Jesus on the cross is losing his peace in order that we might receive his. That's the means by which Jesus offers us peace. And the Bible says something about how our hearts are warm to God through this. 1 John 4.19 tells us we love because God first loved us. And this, if we're getting back to what the Holy Spirit has to do with this, this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And just for the mechanics of how this works, we actually get some insight in our text this morning. Verse 16 tells us, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And maybe you know this word helper is notoriously difficult to translate. Some translations say another comforter, another counselor, another advocate. The advocate gets closest to the original language. It is a legal term here that's being used. An advocate is someone who really is on your side and makes your case on your behalf. And what's interesting about this is Jesus here says he's going to give them another advocate, which is presuming, I think, that Jesus is the other advocate and the Holy Spirit is another one that's being given. And it's a pastor named Tim Keller who I think helped me see this insight that in Hebrews, we've been thinking a lot about how Jesus's advocacy on our behalf now is happening through his interceding on our behalf before God the Father ascended into heaven at God's right hand, at the Father's right hand side. He's interceding on our behalf by pointing to the cross. He's making the case to God the Father, I have paid the price for their sins and it would be unjust for you to hold their sins against them. And Keller points out in the same way, this other advocate, the Holy Spirit, gives us love for God by being an advocate, not to the Father, but to each Christian's heart. And he does it the same way. The Holy Spirit points to the cross for our heart and says, look at the cross. Look at what God has done for you. Look at the love that drove him there. Look at the punishment he took on your behalf. Look that he was raised from the dead. Know that God loves you. Know that he offers you his peace. And in a sense, what this means is that the person who's being described by Jesus here as someone who loves God is a Christian by definition, because to be a Christian means to receive the love that God offers in the cross. And the extent to which we receive that, to that extent, a love for God will begin to grow. 
John Piper likes to say, you know, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Sometimes we say, well, it means to believe in Jesus. And that's true. But that phrase, believe in Jesus, is so loose. Piper says, the drunk on the street who's never been to a church before says he believes in Jesus. What Piper likes to say, what makes a Christian, is that Jesus has become your treasure. It's not that you go to church. It's not that you engage in just trying to follow these commandments. No, it's that Jesus has become precious to you because you have come to terms with the love that he has poured out to you on the cross. And the person involved in that process of warming our hearts to God is the Holy Spirit. So that's a question for us this morning. How do we feel about God? (laughs) Are we Christians in the true sense of having a love for God that comes from his love for us? Would you describe your love, would you describe yourself as having someone as, as having something like love for God? If not, our response shouldn't be to feel guilty so much as to look hard again at our distance from God without Jesus and the extent to which and the cost at which he went to give us his love and the peace that comes from being able to have God's presence to us. It's not just the peace in the sense of a being who is nice and powerful next to us. It's actually the peace that comes from God's peace mediated through the cross, assured to our heart over and over by the Spirit. That's the kind of peace that Jesus speaks about here. But lastly, I just want to look now at the practice of peace. We've looked at the problem of peace, the prospect of peace, and I want to look at the practice of peace. I, I appreciate that. Maybe when we think about peace not depending on our circumstances. If we're Christians, maybe we're aware that we don't always feel this way. And I think maybe that can lead us to question whether we really are Christians. But notice in verse 27 of our text, we get the only command that Jesus gives in this passage. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The fact that Jesus gives a command here implies that our experiencing of the peace of God will not be something automatic. There is something for us to do to actually have access to it and to live it out as a reality. And I think actually in this text, we get a sense of what practical steps are needed to do that. How do you practice the peace of God? I think if we had to have one thing that summarized what that means, it would actually come in chapter 15, where in verse four, Jesus uses the language of abiding. He says, abide in me and I in you. The way in which we practice the peace of God is by abiding in him. To abide means to remain. We get the sense of peacefulness that comes from just remaining in the presence of someone we love. And I think in chapter 14, we actually get unpacked some details as to what does it mean to abide in the presence of God in such a way that we actually have access to this peace that's available to the Christian. Well, we see, I think first, that abiding involves abiding in the words of God. Look with me at verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, I think these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. The words of Jesus brings them to mind at times when we feel far from him. But there's something particular in this, commentators think, that's more than just the experience of the everyday Christian. This seems to be also have a, have a particular meaning for the disciples. 
because the disciples who would become the apostles were those on whose testimony the New Testament's authority would rest. Jesus here is anticipating the writing of another scripture. And when we think about what the scriptures were in Jesus's day, that would have been the Old Testament, we see that Jesus saw them with the utmost respect and authority. He says, scripture cannot be broken. Not a dot will be taken away. He quotes in Mark chapter 12, verse 36 from Psalm 110. And he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. So we see Jesus has a view of the the Old Testament scriptures that sees it as not just authoritative, but also as the words of the Holy Spirit himself, as God's words. And Jesus here, it seems, is anticipating the writing of a new scripture that will also contain by the Holy Spirit's power, the words of God. The way in which I think peace is practiced here, I think the implication by the association that Jesus is speaking of the giving of the Spirit, the peace that can come through that, and now here this discussion of God's word, is that for the Christian, the way we abide in God's peace is in part through how we abide in God's words. Now there's a news item that came up a few years ago where the London Underground, the subway system, um, they were going to replace the voice that said, mind the gap every time the subway doors opened. And as they were going to do that, because the same voice had been used for so many years, they received a request for them not to make the change. And they learned that the request actually came from the widow of the man who was recorded saying those words. And this woman shared that actually... Sometimes she would simply ride the subway to hear her husband's voice. That's what I think it looks like to abide in the words of someone. When you abide in someone's words, you're not just listening to them, but you're savoring them, you're treasuring them, you're meditating on the love that you feel in them. I think when it comes to what the solution is for the Christian's lack of peace, What is needed is for us to break away from the circumstances that are so stressful and to take that hard first step and then to run to God's words, not just out of a duty just to listen to what they say and check that box, but to come needing to receive the love of God in those words, to meditate on them, to dwell on them, and receive through those words the peace that he has given us. I think we see one practical way in which we practice the peace of the Spirit is by abiding in God's words. I think the second way we see it in this text is through obeying God's commandments. Just look with me again at verse 15. We see God saying, Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This again is repeated in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. We see it again in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. We've looked at how ultimately this is actually encouraging for the Christian. It's a promise that if we love God, that means the Spirit's at work in our hearts and he's making us more like God. But we should not be quick to think that this is a wholly passive affair. Actually, what this is reminding us, at least as a start, is that we cannot have God's peace when we are disobeying Jesus. I think what we see actually is that when we're going through trying circumstances, that Jesus appreciates that it will be hard to think about obedience. Look with me at verse 28. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. And if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. One commentator pointed out that Jesus is saying, 
the disciples were so wrapped up in their grief about what they knew was going to happen that they weren't thinking about what would bring joy to Jesus. And I think as Christians, we can find ourselves caught in the same way. We could find ourselves wrapped up in the circumstances that are hard and real going on in our lives, but we can feel caught up in them so much that we don't consider this question. What in this moment would it look like to please Jesus? What is he asking of us? What kind of obedience is he asking from us now? I love that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where uh, Frodo says to Gandalf that he just simply wishes none of this had ever happened to him. He's been in the, the most trying of circumstances. They're in Moria, in the caves, under the mountains. There are dangers at every turn. And Gandalf says that famous line in response. He says, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Gandalf refocuses Frodo on simply what is the next step? What does it look like to make the most of the time that is given to us? For a more contemporary voice, uh, if you've watched Frozen 2, there is a scene where Anna feels at the end of her hope and sings a song which has the title, Doing the Next Right Thing. I think the reason why we can take that from a Disney movie and actually wrestle with it seriously as Christians is because the Christian faith actually gives us a rational hope on which to ground that kind of confidence, to not think about the future and focus just on what's next. Because even as we see in this text, the Christian faith gives us an assurance that we can have about what the future will be like. Look with me at verse 18 in our text. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's speaking here of his resurrection. He personally will also be coming to the disciples as well as sending them the Spirit. But then we have this beautiful line at the end of verse 19. He says, because I live, you also will live. Jesus is giving his disciples the assurance that if they love God, if they have received what God has done for them, in the cross, just as Jesus rose from the dead, just as that is a fact attested to by historical lines of evidence, so also they can trust that they too, though they die, will one day rise. As one pastor puts it, our resurrection is as certain as Jesus's tomb is empty. And the resurrection, of course, in the Christian understanding is just part of the larger remaking of creation that Jesus began in his own body, but which will continue to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells us also the way in which we will obey his commandments. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When you love someone, what matters to that person becomes dear to you. To the extent to which we begin to love Jesus, what becomes important to us is what matters to him. And as we've been reflecting through this service, part of what matters deeply to Jesus is mission. What an it's an interesting ending to our text that we see in verse 20. Jesus say, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I think it's weird that maybe we think Jesus is ending this wonderful part of his sermon with a doctrinal point telling us how the Trinity works a little bit. <laughs> But I think what must be going on here is that Jesus is saying that this reckless, self-sacrificing, world-defying love of God that we see in the cross that is for the purpose of giving us peace, that that love is actually in the heart of the very nature of who God is. 
It exists in the relationships between the members of the Trinity itself. God's heart for you to know his peace, to not be alone, no matter what. His heart for your friends and neighbors to know that as well. That is something that is at at the heart of God's identity and value as anything else could possibly be. The question is, as Jesus becomes precious to us, will we take the step of faith to take seriously how precious our witness to him is? The steps he would have us take to invite others to know this real peace that passes understanding that is available to us through what God has done on the cross. Sharing our faith might be something that is nerve-wracking or we feel maybe hasn't gone that well before. But here again, we're encouraged by the fact that the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will help us. In Luke 12, 12, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour when you're put on the spot what you ought to say. And all of this, I think we see for our one final way in which we see the practice of peace taking place. All of this we're to do by faith. We practice peace by abiding in God's word, by obeying his commands. But lastly, we practice God's peace through faith, through believing. In verse 29, we see, I have told you all this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. This is reminding us that Jesus is not assuring that Christians won't go through hard circumstances. In fact, Jesus, the The most Christian man there could ever be went through the hardest of circumstances. That's not a guarantee to the Christian that there won't be hard things that happen. Instead, we see Jesus telling us to believe when those things happen. We often think of believing as just sort of giving intellectual assent. But here, I think the kind of belief Jesus is talking about would be better put in terms of courage. Believing involves being aware of circumstances that are happening, but turning our focus to something more grounding in the midst of them. I was a Boy Scout growing up, and part of what we would do was help Cub Scouts, the younger Boy Scouts, transition into Boy Scouts, and there was a ceremony for this. And I remember as part of the ceremony, I had to read this line about courage that really stuck with me, and I, this week, looked it up to see if I could find it, and I did. This is what I said as a Boy Scout to these nine-year-old Cub Scouts, which I think has meaning for us today. Courage is not the quality that enables men to meet danger without fear but the quality of being able to meet danger in spite of one's fears. When we as Christians begin to feel fearful at the circumstances we're in, that is not the sign that we need to throw in the towel and say, well, that's it, I shouldn't be, shouldn't be feeling that. Actually, what Jesus is calling us to do here is to not let those things shake us, to have courage in the sense of, even in spite of our fears, turning to God, abiding in his word, asking what he would have us do to please Jesus next, to think about the next right thing and to move on in obedience. So the question I want to close with is, how are you doing at practicing this peace? How are you doing in abiding in God's word? Does that describe the way that you come to the Bible when you read it? Are you expecting God to give you peace just by his existence Or have you taken the step to receive the peace he gives in the cross and to let that have you run to his word, hungry to hear from him? I wonder what what would describe your times reading the Bible. But secondly, are there parts of your life where you know that part of your lack of peace comes from not obeying fully what Jesus would have you do? I wonder where God might be asking you to obey him, what the next right thing would look like, even in the midst of whatever you're going through. 
And thirdly, I just want to ask, how is your courage doing? Peace does not come down to what you're present in, but whom you are present with. I want to close just with a poem. This was a poem that George VI read uh, right at the brink of the Second World War. It was a time of uncertainty all over Europe and the world. But this is what he said to a fearful nation. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Do you have a piece like that? I think that you can. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.